Hello, this is Daniel Patrick Brennan. This is the Wine is Food podcast. And I'm here in Napa with Tegan Pasalacqua. Say hello, Tegan. Hello. Um, yes, we uh, we kind of been meant to do this, and all of a sudden it dropped in my lap, and I got to mm-hmm. take advantage of it. Um, we're just after harvest, and um, things are settling down. We finally have some time to talk about some things. Um, I know you probably don't know that much about what I've done so far on all these episodes. I'm, I'm sure you listen to like 10 or 12 of them, but maybe not yeah. all 16. Uh, basically, what this is, is I'm basically, you know, I'm talking to some of the people that I meet in wine uh, and brewing and maybe a little bit of food about how they got into it, what your story is. And uh, I know I, I met you last year. I wanted to talk to you a little bit about what you do. We talked, you know, kind of traded a little bit of stories. Uh, but now I hear you just bought a vineyard and it sounds like there's even more to tell. Um, so, yeah, just trying to figure out a little bit about Tegan today. So, um, how you doing, man? I'm doing well. You know, came off probably the busiest harvest I've ever worked, which is a good thing. But, mm-hmm. you know, all, also the, the highest quality all around. So, you know. I think I've heard some people claim that it's, you know, it was the easiest hard harvest they've ever worked. Yeah, that's that yeah. kind of makes sense. I, I'll agree with those yeah. terms. Yeah, it was full on, but never a lot of issues with right. it. It was just kind of get it done and right and get through it. Um, and uh, you work for Turley. You're I, now the winemaker I, there now? I, I am the winemaker at Turley. Yeah. Yeah. So that's congratulations on Thank that. Thank you. Yep. Um, how, how did you end up there? What were you doing the last... Uh, I don't know, 15 years of your life or something? Last 15 years? <laughs> well, I, I, my bachelor's degree is in public health. Okay. And I was planning on being a social worker, and I was born and raised in Napa, not in the wine industry. My <clears throat> father is a retired cement truck driver, and my mother is retired from working in administration at the local hospital. So <clears throat> I moved home from college, and I was applying for for a job as a social worker here in here in Napa. I don't know, I'm sure I like where this story is and, and a And a friend of mine, while I was going through the interview process, I mean, it's it's a state job. It's, it's a job with the county that is administered by the state. So my a friend of mine said, hey, you have a couple of years of organic chemistry and microbiology. Are you interested in a job in a winery lab? And I said, sure, that sounds awesome. You know, this the hiring process was going to take six months anyway, so yeah, I figured, yeah. why not? So in 2001, I started at uh, Edgewood Estates, which is now Hall Winery. Okay. And it was Edgewood Estates slash Golden State Vintners, and I, I worked uh, as a quality assurance uh, lab tech. And I worked there for about seven months. And in about the first month, I realized, holy, holy shit, like this is something you can actually like do as a career. Even growing up in Napa, I never imagined the ability to have a career in wine. You know, how old were you then? So you were just, I was 23. 23. Yep. That's great to realize that at that age. I think that's, that's no, it was interesting. I mean, it was just kind of, I, growing up here, I never comprehended that you could actually make a career out of it. Yeah. So after about a month, I realized I really loved it. And after about three months, I realized it wasn't the place for me. Uh, just I wanted to do more. So sure. I, I, I worked there seven months. And then I went and worked at Napa Wine Company in the lab for about a year and a half. And it was a really neat time at Napa Wine Company. I mean, Palmire still made there. But Palmire is being made there. Blanquier, all of Heidi Barrett's wines. Larkmead was made there. Uh, 
there were just a lot of, you know, who's who's of winemaking sure. still custom crushing there and working in the lab. I mean, you interacted with them on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, they want to know what you know. <laughs> well, exactly. So, I mean, they wanted you to do favors for them. And so you kind of, you know, became friends with certain winemakers. And I befriended Andy Smith, who makes Larkmead and Dumal. And Andy Smith's a Scottish guy and is probably as good as winemakers as they come in the world. And he had worked uh, for Dr. Neil McCallum at Dry River. And he he had helped a guy, uh, Doug Weiser. They worked together up at Litteri, and he helped Doug Weiser get a job in New Zealand at Dry River. And so Andy, I kind of begged Andy that I really wanted to work in New Zealand and he kind of tested me for about three months. And then he said, oh, I've written a couple letters to people in New Zealand. If here's the order of what jobs you should take. And I got an email from Doug Weiser, who had just started up a winery called Craigie Range. Mm -hmm. And he basically said, you've never worked in the cellar, but Andy Smith, you know, vouches for you and you know that's good enough for me because he got me over to New Zealand so I went and worked in New Zealand and I wrote a bunch of letters to wineries back in Napa while I was there where I wanted to work I realized about after a week at Craigie Range that I wanted to stay in the cellar Mm -hmm. I helped them set up their lab there uh and do some lab work and then uh, yeah so yeah it's it's funny because originally I may or may not have Got some wine tested in that, in that lab. lab. No. <laughs> well, it's funny because originally Doug didn't order any cash stills, and it was one of those things. I'm like, why don't you do VAs? I came from this, you know, two plus years in 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 labs, and I was still. It's been a 180 shift for me, but I'm like, why aren't you doing VAs? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he goes, I do VAs, and he pointed to his nose. You know, he does. I do VAs every week, and he yeah. pointed to his nose. And the best thing was one of my friends went to work for him the next year, Matt Dees, and Matt was. I went over to Matt's house to give him some wine to bring to Doug, and as he was packing the wine, he was also packing these cash stills that Doug had had him <laughs> order. So I was like, yes, you know, it was this, you know. And as most of your friends in New Zealand know, Doug passed away in a tragic kite surfing accident. Uh, so when I was in New Zealand, I wrote a letter to Turley Wine Cellars and said, hey, I'd really love to work with you. I, I like what you guys do with Old Vines. Okay, I was just going to So how did you, you kind of knew them before? Or? I, I knew of them before. I mean, they, you know, we still do. You know, we make five or six different single vineyard petite Syrahs, mm-hmm. which really attracted me to them at the, at the time. And their work with Old Vines was something really interesting to me. Uh, and so I wrote this letter and, I didn't know at the time, but Doug's ex-fiance actually had worked at Turley in hospitality and, you know, she worked kind of, she ran the office when it was like a three person winery. And so I get this email back and forth and, uh, Doug vouched for me and I got offered a 10 week internship at Turley. And that was, uh, in, let's see, I was offered the job in fab. So in this coming Feb, it'll be 10 years ago. Wow. So 10 weeks turn, has turned into 10 years. <laughs> uh, so not without, you know, trials and tribulations. As any young person in the wine industry knows, you you, you feel at times, uh, I don't know if entitled is the right word, but you feel that you're, you have more to offer than a winery wants from you mm-hmm. or gives you kind of, uh, empowers you to have. And it's taken me, you know, 
10 years to really understand that it, it's really a privilege to work in someone's cellar. Yeah. You know, it, it's them inviting you kind of, you know, into their house. And the best way to describe it is kind of behind the curtain yeah. and see what they do. And, you know, as you're working harvest, you're working these long hours and, you know, it's physical and it's emotional. And it, it, it took me so long to realize that what a gift it is for someone to invite you to work in their cellar. Yeah, no, uh, I agree completely. So, and, you know, that's the one thing I'd say to any young, you know, aspiring winemaker out there is you'll look back and realize when, you know, you become a winemaker that, you know, or whatever you do that, you know, wow, this person, you know, let me into their home, like kind of their trade secrets, you know? Yeah. Uh, and I think that's the really special thing about the wine biz. And how many, so you started out there as a, uh, like an intern and as an intern. Wine, and then So I started out as an intern. They had offered me 10 weeks and about after a month, they said, Hey, how about you go work another Southern hemisphere harvest and then come back to a cool. full-time job. And I'm like, that's amazing. That's awesome. That's, that's like ideal We're on the same page, <laughs> you know, cause I was still young and, uh, I was super fired up to do it. And then like a month later, or three weeks later, they came back and said, how about you just stay here? Uh, and I'm like, Oh, uh, it's like, wow, that's awesome. I, it was kind of, uh, you know, them wanting to keep me, but it also wasn't like the first situation seemed like the best situation, but then I think what they saw in me, they wanted just to keep me. Sure. But so, I mean, it, it was kind of back and forth, you know, there was kind of a silver lining to it. Uh, and so I worked for two years. I was, you know, uh, the gringo who worked in the cellar and the vineyard, mm -hmm. pruning, suckering, shoveling under the vines uh, during the spring, during the growing season, and then working in the cellar uh, when there was cellar work. And then after two years, I'd actually... Uh, you know, you're young and a relationship had just ended and I'd always wanted to work in France and I, I was fascinated by Syrah and I was fascinated by whole cluster Syrah and to backtrack a bit, I went to New Zealand. There was a friend of mine, a guy named Gary Thomas, who had worked with me. He's planted a vineyard in Waipar. It's a pretty amazing vineyard. Uh, he'd worked for Mountford for a while. He worked uh, at Teawa, he worked at Dry River years ago, uh, and he's a pretty amazing guy. If you if you ever get the chance to meet him, you should. Uh, I'll have to he, ask uh, Jenny about it. Yeah, he's he's a one man show down in Waipara, and he when I worked with him really introduced me to New Zealand wines, and I fell in love with New Zealand Pinot Noir, and so I went to New Zealand wanting to make Pinot Noir, and then of course. You know, I worked at Craigie Range, and then there was this thing that I saw called Block 14 Syrah, which I know I don't think they really make anymore. But uh, and there was the La Soul as well, and the the Gimlet Gravel Syrah really just I'd liked Syrah before, but it kind of it was so fresh and new that it really it's almost like it wipes the slate clean where you're just like oh i didn't even think it was this could do this type of stuff right and so then i kind of had to go back <laughs> right so then basically you know i i totally forgot about uh pinot noir and was kind of fascinated with syrah as you kind of you know when when you're learning so much uh so rapidly you know you just kind of 
you're obsessed with one thing and then you kind of like drop it and move on to another thing. It, I mean, that's the thing about the wine biz. It really can make you kind of uh, neurotic mm. in that way that you just become obsessed with something like this is amazing. Oh my God, this is, this is like, <laughs> this is the best thing in the world. And then like six months later, you're like, Oh, I don't drink that. <laughs> like, you know, you, you, and then you like kind of look down at the people who are like, a year behind you and not that I look down on them, but when you're in that situation, you're like, yeah, you, you know, you're probably looking down on most of them, but, but you're kind of like, Oh, why do you like that? <laughs> you know? And it's, I kind of look at it. It's like the father son combination where fathers like see their son, you know, be awkward or something. And they know that's a reflection They're of themselves, like, you know, bad pop music. Or yeah. Something, and you're like, you'll oh, get yeah. over that. Yeah. You know, <laughs> So yeah, listening to the blues soon. Don't worry. (laughs) My mind was totally blown on Syrah. So I was at this point in my life realizing that, you know, this was the chance. So I put my notice in at Turley and I got a job in the Northern Rhone. So I moved to uh, France and I worked for Alain Graillot and his son, Maxime, in uh, primarily Crow's Hermitage. Uh, he'd also just planted a pretty amazing vineyard in Crows and Larnage, which is the south uh, border of Hermitage, so terrace slope, pretty amazing vineyard. And right. then he also planted about a hectare over uh, in the old area of my language with the Saint-Joseph. <laughs> so he, uh, and Alain Graillot, I think is, you know, deserves more than anyone I've met to have their name on a wine label. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he would race you squeegeeing the floors at the end of the day and really cared about what he does. Uh, his wines are amazing. I think he uh, is one of those people who, you know, realized I'm never going to own a Grand Cru Burgundy plot, but who cares? I can make the best wine in a region. And that's what he went and did. I mean, that's, I mean that brings up something interesting and I think is another sort of conflict and maybe the wine industry is that, you know, you have these say systems in France or Italy or Germany, whatever it is. And the business is sort of set up a certain way where you almost have to accept certain things, but that may, I'm not saying that that's bad at all. I'm saying that, you know, you, there's a, you know, for instance, champagne, some all oh, those people have a license to print, you know, money or whatever, right. but there's kind of a reason why they do, you know, right. because they've proven themselves over a long period of time. And maybe in the old world, you run into some of those walls, whereas in the new world, you could decide, oh, I'm going to make this the best wine ever or the most expensive and people are going to pay this much and I can do anything on the label and I have all this freedom to do other things. But you kind of then, but you're also out there on your own. You have no history behind you to prove, you know, well, and that's kind or of maybe a little bit of history. That's you know? kind of the awkward stage that Napa is in right now. You know, Napa is becoming kind of a playground for people who want their name on the label you know and have never driven a tractor maybe they drive a tractor you know for photo shoots and um you know growing up here it's it's hard to see that more and more people are moving in and they're not involved in you know wine growing where you would want to be and they're kind of boxing boxing people out boxing kind of our generation out and they're not doing it with uh, hard work. They're doing it financially. With and <clears throat> so back to, so worked for Gryo, but the week before I left for Gryo, my boss at Turley said, when are you coming back? And I'm like, <laughs> I wasn't planning on coming back. And he said, well, I want you to come back and 
take over my responsibilities in the vineyards, which, you know, we've always kind of said at Turley that, you know, we make wine in the vineyards. We farm everything organically. Uh, we don't manipulate the wines. We don't add any acid. We don't add enzymes. We use the same percentage of new oak on every lot. Basically, all the lots are more or less made the exact same to really showcase what the site has to offer. All the vineyards are farmed in the same way. And Do you have issues... I mean, I've just seen numbers that I'm not used to, like last year, and I, you know, this year I saw it again with, you know, something like high pH and things like that. Like, or is that? Do you think that that has something to do with? I I think it's the vineyards, and uh, I think it has a lot to do with uh, chemical farming, Mm -hmm. you know, and uh, salt-based fertilizers and a lot of excess potassium in the soil and. You know, if you look at the recommendations that most ag consultants make, they they make it on the average grape production of the Nap or the California, which includes a lot of the Central Valley. So, you know, they're basically saying, Oh, you're taking off, you know, this much potassium every year at eight tons per acre. It's like, Well, you're not taking off eight tons per no, acre. Not and uh, hmm. I really look at the if it's usually if you're seeing high pHs, it's either you're watering too much the soils are dead through salt-based fertilizers or you're adding too much potassium, which could be the salt-based fertilizer that you're using, or it's in the wrong, wrong spot and, or you're picking too late. And it, it's, it's a pretty neat thing. Cause more or less, you know, when you can't add acid, when that's just the philosophy. I think part of it though, is that picking too late because they just want to get to a certain well, sugar, that's, but that, but I've also also tasted fruit and been like well this is a that was a, a revelation for me last right. year to taste something that was 28 bricks and go oh it's not ready yet well you but know? that that goes back to farming you yeah. know m- most of our vineyards are dry farmed uh and you know w- what we do with irrigation nowadays is we continue the vegetative cycle of the vine uh and we don't encourage the reproductive cycle which is something that's you know caused by hormones and a couple different uh acids and that actually start prepping the vine to do what it wants to do and take over the valley with uh, propagating its seeds so i kind of look at that and just think it's a yield thing and it's over watering and you know the thing we need to remember is you know before 1960 you know napa valley was dry farmed yeah you know, I mean, if you think about it, Andy Beckstoffer is the first person to put in drip irrigation in the Napa Valley, and he's only been here since the 70s. Mm. You know, so just to think of what's changed kind of in our lifetime, not that we were in the wine industry, but since we've been alive, to, <laughs> since we've been alive and to realize that, you know, say our grandparents' generation, everything was dry farmed in the Napa Valley. And what was primarily planted was the hillsides. Mm-hmm. And I tell people that, and they just kind of look at me with this, like, blank stare on their face of, are you sure? <laughs> like, and it's like, yeah, you know, I mean, the oldest vineyards were planted in the hillsides. You look at, you know, these historic, you know, wineries up in the hills, up on Howl Mountain, and all those vineyards were dry farmed. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think people forget that, and, you know, it irrigation is just a tool and you know it can help and it can hurt but the reality is you can still make wine dry farmed everywhere in california yeah yeah it's there's uh certainly a lot of hills around here that will probably be full of vineyards and the valley floor would be open if you were in maybe maybe the old world well and and i mean historically you know you look at you know not to you know 
talk trash, but you know, when Opus was part of the Tokalon vineyard, I mean, that, that was where the vegetables were planted. Mm-hmm. You know, there's hot water running under, under that vineyard. Uh, it's closer to the Napa River, and most vineyards weren't planted there. They were kind of planted in, you know, the low mid slope of both sides of the valley, and then you know, uh, up in the hillsides. Was that? Uh, I read uh, years ago. I read a book called on Napa and kind of the formation. Of, this is before I was even considering making wine or anything. I just happened to read a book about. It was like nonfiction, uh, and it was you know, the story, it was kind of more entertaining right. stories of stuff and talk about how this brand got developed, what bank loan, you know, Bank right. of America doing this and Nestle coming in right. and now, you know, the line train, everything. Right. And one of the things, uh, and I don't remember the details, but I do remember uh, them talking extensively about the formation of Opus One and, and, and other projects like that. But that was definitely a focus. I thought like sort of almost historically in the Valley of of what, what was it, the winemaker? It was Mondavi and a French winemaker. Rochelle, right, yeah, right. So, and, and just how that almost was like a turning point, I think, for uh, the Valley, really. You know? Yeah, I mean, they, they made, you know, I think they made like the first 10 vintages at Mondavi, you know, before they built Opus. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and I applaud what Opus does, and, you know, it, it's definitely one of those kind of icons of the Valley. Yeah. Uh, you know, the reality is... They used to say, oh, all the fruit just comes off right here in front of the winery. But, I mean, they they have vineyards out at Tokalon. I mean, you can, back, back in the back, the, the sweet yeah. spot of Tokalon, they have vineyards back there. And clearly they, they've chosen well uh, site selection. But, uh, yeah, historically, like, their vineyard wasn't planted. Yeah. Hmm. Hmm, interesting. So, anyway, yes. back at Turley. Yes. You're asked to come back. You're in Stone. Asked France. to come back. I, I was. I hadn't left for France yet. Was asked to come back, and I said sure. And so worked in worked at Gryo. You know, I got there before harvest. Uh, I had been offered a job to make wine for a gentleman in the south of France, in the Roussillon, and I went and checked out that deal. And I was like, yeah, you know, this isn't probably isn't the thing. I should, yeah. you know, go back. And but worth going to check out. Yeah, worth going. <laughs> worth going to check out. And I, I've been back to that region quite a few times since then. And came back to Turley and just you know started working in the vineyards every day. Like all of our vineyards, I, I visited every vineyard every week. We have we had at that time about twenty five. So just driving my car around, working with growers. Uh, I've always told people it was more. It, it, it's an it's almost a political position because basically (laughs) you're working with great vineyards and you're trying to improve quality like with our vineyard selection more or less I was trying to improve quality from five to one percent you know to get that last bit of quality out of the vineyards yeah uh you know which is primarily with organic viticulture it's all about timing and when when you do things and I think with most farming it's about timing and so basically it was just kind of being with them, kind of helping them with any resources if I couldn't answer questions, you know. But basically I got to work with 25 farmers, primarily with old vineyards who, you know, were fourth generation farmers, first generation farmers, had been farming for 50 years. Uh, so, I mean, more or less, I mean, it was an education. Probably a lot of uh, empathy that would needed to be there too from you and where you're 
or sympathy, but but having done a, little, a lot of work in the vineyard yourself, you're like, fuck, I know that's a pretty tough thing to run into. Yeah, and I mean, that. but, you know, it comes down to, you know, the one thing is, you know, I was being paid to do something. So, I mean, there's empathy, but, I mean, there's also, we're paying you top dollar for this. For this fruit. You know, and, you know, it was something you rarely pull out of your bag. Like, we're paying you to do this. Yes, yeah. Do you know so what I mean? Like, we're, we're paying you, you know. It's funny, I heard that. Uh, exact quote uh, this harvest right of like sometimes you got to remind these guys like right know, I we're know not, it's tough we're but... not paying county average you know yeah. we, we, we're kind of you know and and more than anything that the help we were were giving certain farmers uh you know we larry turley's a very generous person you know we, we like to work with them and mm-hmm. you know for someone that has a 10 acre old vine vineyard they're not going to buy a spader they're not going to buy a cover crop seed it just doesn't work into their budget so you know i'd haul it out on a truck drop it off let them use it come back pick it up bring it to another vineyard uh yeah i mean that's kind of if you of logistics want, yeah well if you want things certain things done a certain way you know, you really have to be malleable and just say, okay, well, I'll go pick it up at this place at seven at night when this farmer finishes and bring it out to you and drop it off at nine. And then I'll come back, you know, in a day and a half and pick it up. So, uh, and yeah, I, I basically, I was always involved with the winemaking, uh, from the time I came back, you know, always, you know, I was making the picking decisions at that point, uh, you know, making a lot of the blending decisions and kind of just always, you know, involved. I wasn't just someone who just worked in the vineyards. And, you know, up till that point when I went and focused on the vineyards, I mean, most of my time was spent in the cellar and in the lab, you know, so. It's good. It's good to get well-rounded like that. I feel, um, I don't think people get to experience that again when you go back to talking about working for people and them inviting you into their home and, right. you know, and that part of that I think is being able to do a lot of different things and help them in different ways and understand well, what, right. what's going on. I mean, if you, place, if you look yeah. at the modern, you know, kind of progression of someone in the wine industry, I kind of went the opposite way. Mm-hmm. You know, I started wearing, you know, a college shirt and pants and you know (laughs) comfy shoes in the lab yeah and then went to the cellar and then went to the vineyards um and i I, you know i've enjoyed it the whole way yeah so that's cool uh yeah good times and uh yeah this you know june will be 10 years and uh and now you own a vineyard too now you're a wine grower i'm yeah you and the wife vigneron uh yeah, uh, I, I was really lucky. Uh, there's a vineyard that my wife and I bought in July of this year. It's 20 acres. It's in the McCallamy River AVA of Lodi. And okay. it, it's, it's, there's a big difference. You know, there's west side and east side in the McCallamy River. It's like gangs kind of? More or less, yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, pretty, it's pretty deep, huh? Yeah, they, well, it, it depends on the depth of the soil, really, uh, <laughs> and the water table. Yeah. Uh, it, it's a pretty neat region. It's primarily a soil type called Tokay Fine Sandy Loam, uh-huh. and basically it's all decomposed granite and quartz coming down from the Sierra Nevadas. And McCallamy is a river that was named after... Uh, McCallamy means fishnet. Mm-hmm. So basically it was uh, Native Americans who were fishermen up in the Sierras and they would put out their fishnets on this river to catch fish. 
uh, it's some of the coldest and cleanest water in all of California because it's all snowmelt. Mm-hmm. But over time, it's deposited all this quartz and granite that's been decomposed from the Sierras along its shores. So the east side of the McCallum River AVA has more sand and the west side has more clay and loam. So the west side wines have more uh, fruit and more uh, less less natural acid. So mm-hmm. the wines have a presence even if they're all 15% alcohol. The west side wines actually seem like they're bigger. And mm. the east side wines uh, have more tannin and more spice. And I've been working with a grower uh, named Marcus Bokish, uh, and he lives down the street from this vineyard. And he introduced me to the owner in 2004. I was trying to buy fruit for Turley, and the woman's brother had just passed away uh, at a young age, and she just wanted to sell the fruit to one person. Mm-hmm. And it's a 20-acre vineyard in Turley. That's like huge for Turley. So I basically said, okay, nice to meet you. And there were a couple old vine vineyards in this neighborhood. Uh, and then always working with Marcus with one of these small plots, the woman noticed the work we were doing. I mean, the vineyard is kind of, it, I call it the public shaming. We were farming this vineyard so well around other vineyards that were farmed more or less well, but this vineyard really stuck stood out that it was farmed so well and she was walking her dog and go, what's going on there and you know mark said do you remember tegan he was and she goes oh yeah he we're working together on this vineyard and so we started some talks about buying her vineyard uh she's an older woman her grandfather planted the vineyard in 1915 that's cool uh and her grandfather farmed it his whole life uh her father farmed it his whole life and then her brother who passed away at a young age farmed it his whole life and so basically she was of, she had retired. She was in education for a long time and realized that she couldn't, she had someone farming it. Uh, but she just kind of through meeting me, we kind of went back and forth with negotiations for a long time. And I guess not negotiations. We just had a lot of talks about the vineyard. And then once we finally had a negotiation stage, she just said, no, I can't sell you the vineyard for that price. And I said, okay, well, that's the only way it works for me. And we kind of said, okay, thank you, let's stay in touch. And the next morning she called me at about 7.30 in the morning and <laughs> said, when I left yesterday, I realized my you know, grandfather, father, and brother would want you to own the vineyard, so I want to sell it to you. That's a lot of pressure on you, but yeah. you better do good. You no, know, no. I it's, you sound like you're up for the challenge, though, man, and you yeah. understand that. I mean, that's a, a great, that's, a, again, an honor to, oh, yeah. to be able to take over a piece of land like that. And, uh, well, I'm... I guess I'm envious. That's great. I mean, to have that that um, project and something like that to, to undertake, you know. Yeah, but, I'm I'm selling most of it, you know, to myself at Turley, you mm-hmm. know, or to Larry. Larry's the one buying it. Uh, but then, you know, people came out of the woodworks. It's it's 15 acres of 1915 Zinfandel. Uh, it's four acres of vines planted in 1992. Half of that is Zinfandel, and the other half is Pinot Gris. And uh, I sold most of the Pinot Gris to Morgan Peterson at Bedrock, Morgan Twain Peterson. And then two of my friends, Matthew Rorick, who has the label Forlorn Hope, and Abe Scherner, who has the Scolium Project, they each bought some of the Pinot Gris. And then uh, with the Zinfandel, I sold it to a lot of people that I really respect their winemaking. Uh, Nyers Vineyards, my friend Tadeo, who makes the wines at Nyers, Mm -hmm. uh, they bought some. Uh, Morgan 
Twain Peterson at Bedrock bought some of the old Zen. Mike Officer, who has the label Carlisle, which is a yeah, famous. It's like, you know people that yeah. are going to buy this stuff, so, so, so it's a perfect thing to, to move into is if you can pull it off, and it sounds like you, you are. But I, I just Sorry, I want to backtrack yep. for a second. Uh, Pinot Gris from that area. Is it pretty hot out there? I mean, what? what? It's warm. Uh, you know, it is. The two things about the area where the vineyard is is, would you say it's a more of a dry, crisper, like almost Pinot Grigio, or is it? Because I think, I think a lot of times we. <laughs> do you know why I call it Pinot Gris? I know why you call it. Pinot why Gris. do I call it Pinot? Because Gris. Because you probably made some in New Zealand or something. No, or, no, or, no. Or because... I I actually call it Pinot Gris out of kind of an homage to the family I bought the vineyard off. Oh, because so, it's Kirsch, Kirschman Kirschman Vineyard. Kirschman. So, yeah, which okay. you know is their their German family. Uh, if if you check out Lodi, this is a fascinating uh, fact about Lodi. Is there are a lot of Germans in Lodi, but they actually came from the Dakotas, uh, mm. and before the Dakotas, they were actually Germans from Russia. So the Kirschmans, the Schmieds, and uh, the Bombacks, these three families in this area in Lodi, they all came from Odessa, Russia, but they were Germans. So out of the German ancestry, I just kind of feel like, you know, <laughs> I mean, I'm Italian, but uh, I kind of feel like it would be disrespectful to call, you know, a German's vineyard. Well, by... if you're Italian, you know, not to mess with the Germans. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, no, that that's kind of why I call it Pinot Gris. Uh, and, you know, people that I sell it to can call it whatever they want. Uh, I just kind of like. No, oh, no, that's yeah. totally cool. I understand. I just. Sometimes I like to uh, back up and make a point because, uh, well, I was just having this conversation with uh, my second cousin who is really, you know, interest. She does graphic design, right? She's like totally interested in the wine part of it. But I'm like, God, sorry, I don't have time to always tell you. So I just gave her an explanation of like, she's like, right. She knows what we make at Unison. Right. She knows what I make. She's oh, I wish you guys made some Pinot Grigio. And I'm like, well, we make Pinot Grigio, Gris, actually. Right. It's the same thing. But, but, you know, and the whole thing. And uh, she's like, oh, okay, I give her the couple regions that you try it out, you right. know. And uh, I, I do like to, because I think other people listen to this podcast. I hope other people yeah. listen to this podcast than just uh, guys like me and you uh, that are sort of in the, you know, in the trenches and just working geeks, and we, you yeah. Know, geeks yeah, yeah we're like throwing out terminology yeah. and that's not even a big one but I, I do like to we'll, point stuff out like that because sometimes we well back to the back to the uh you know you asked about you know warm warm area and it is warm out there uh the recent degree days in the last couple of years has been closer to uh been closer to uh, Rutherford and Oakville. It's cooler than, say, St. Helena. Mm -hmm. You know, St. Helena, our old Zen vineyards are always the first to pick in St. Helena. Haynes always the first to pick, our best wine. Uh, kind of throws all the hang time. Blazing uh, hot out there. Thing out there. Yeah, I mean, you know, blazing hot. Uh, you know, it's St. Helena. Yeah. And so, yeah, it, it gets, we get a lot of influence from the Delta, believe it or not. It kind of breathes in and out. Uh, up to this part in Lodi, but also the the McCallum River wraps around the vineyard. If 
if anyone knows what the Oxbow is in Napa, it's this one thing I, my wife and I, when I was trying to explain to her what the Oxbow was one time, and it's like, well, water kind of goes uphill. I was like, how can water go uphill? You know, uh, <laughs> so th there's a lot of influence from the McCallamy as well. So I'm not acting like it's this cool, you know, it's not, you know, Annapolis on the Sonoma coast. Yeah, it's, yeah. It, it is Lodi, but... But that's uh, it, it, it does. It does have some. It does have some uh, cool influence, and the people who all bought it made really cool wine out of it. Uh, you know, some whole cluster, some de-stem skin ferment, some just basket pressed, and sure. uh, really cool wines. Good. So. Yes. What next? We're 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 to what to you know? Well, what next? You believe it or not, we've just already talked for thirty six minutes. Thirty six. You've got your quota. You uh -oh, can now have. I can a, leave. You can now have a uh, a dinner roast. Okay. But uh, no, no, we're not done yet. Though. Okay. What like what uh what's next? What one thing I haven't asked that we haven't really communicated was, uh, what kind of wines do you make at Turley? I know you talked about some of the vineyards you have, but you know so, overall, what's their sort of flagship brand and all that kind so of. So Tur Turley's philosophy. Uh, Larry Turley started Turley in nineteen ninety three. Larry was an emergency room doctor for a quarter of a century. And in 1979, he planted a vineyard at his house in St. Helena, where he still lives. And it was Sauvignon Blanc on AXR1. I think he still brags that a couple of years they got 11 ton Sieco dry farmed. Uh, but that was the wine that started Frog's Leap. So Larry, John Williams, and Julie Johnson, William Williams Johnson, started Frog's Leap and started it at Larry's house. Larry always owned the property, he always owned the equipment, but he was a partner in the business of Frog's Leap, but he always owned the facility. So, you know, Frog's Leap got to a size that he just kind of thought, you know, it's pretty big having it at my house. So <laughs> he, uh, he sold to John and Julie his interest. And what he, my big joke is, I mentioned he was the emergency room physician is that he believes he can save anything. So what really, the 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 sirens, you know, that draw drew Larry to these vineyards were these old vines, and knowing that he loves Zinfandel and knowing what organic farming did. So the Turley Estate's the first certified organic vineyard in Napa County. Uh, that's something we still yeah, hold. That's awesome. uh, and yeah, so he was just drawn to these old vine vineyards, that knowing with like good farming and organic viticulture, you could really bring these. And these were vineyards that were in pretty bad shape. Uh, so in 93, he started with three Zinfandels and two Petit Syrahs. And now we're up to 21 Zinfandels, five Petit Syrahs. And you're saving them one vineyard at a time. A sin, yeah, you know. a Cinso and then one white blend that comes from, uh, we call it the white coat in reference to Larry's being yeah, a doctor. I mean, that's... Uh... Those are just the, the wines we bottle. We have we have a trial period for a lot of the other old vines and fundels. I want to come out and do an internship at Turkey. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I think, again, a worthy, like you talk about, you know, you feeling uh, honored to do something. I mean, what is more honorable than uh, rescuing a, a farming, you know, project and, or a vineyard and, and, realize, and not only rescuing it financially, but more importantly, I think, you know, taking it in the right direction for everybody. You well, know? and one of the funniest things is you, you talk to people in Napa and say, oh, if we do this, the vines are going to die. And it's like, I don't think many people who 
work in the wine business realize how hard it is to kill a grapevine. It's crazy. I mean, I've are. seen you, you see people who go out and plow under their vineyards, you know, because something happened. They didn't have a contract. They can't farm it. And the next year, there are the grapevines growing back. You know They're what I mean? Weeds, yeah, man. They're they weeds. are. And so, you know, with a little love and care, you can nurse them back together. And some vine, some vineyards were more well taken care of over the years. Some weren't. Uh, but it's been really fun. It's a good way to see the state uh, traveling. You know, we we make wine down in Paso Robles. We make wine in Lodi. We make wine in Contra Costa County. We make wine in Napa County. We make wine in Sonoma County, Mendocino County, uh, and Amador County. How we, large is the whole production? We're doing with we we just purchased another winery up in Amador. We're doing close to twenty four, twenty five thousand cases. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know that's 27 wines so we have two blends and the rest are single vineyards and all under turley all under turley wow yep that's ambitious that's really yeah. so where are the wines sold private label uh yeah no we wine club we, we we're pretty lucky uh larry and aaron were really smart with the prices haven't been raised since 1997 15 years and a bottle price hasn't been raised on a turley wine which I don't know of any winery in Napa yeah, who can say that. Like but uh, luckily we sell, you know, most of our wine direct. We have a mailing list mm-hmm. uh, that has, you know, we're lucky enough to have a wait. And, you know, Larry likes to still sell wines to people who have supported him. So we ha- we sell a bit of wine through distributors, but not a lot. Uh, but most of it's sold direct to consumers who are on our list. And, you know, with making as many wines as we do, we have vineyards that we make, you know, 85 cases a year and so you know 850 people get one bottle of that wine yeah and it's you know there are people who have been on the list for 10 years and still don't get offered a bottle of it and mm-hmm. it's like sorry it's just that's and, cool. it, and it's uh, not that's it's cool. not our most expensive wine it's just this is this is what it is yeah it's like uh you know having a a seat license or something. <laughs> it's, it's great. Yeah, yeah no, we're, we're in a good, but I, I think, you know, the, the, the foresight not to raise prices uh, during the real boom has just been a godsend for, for the company. Uh, we still can, you know, keep our prices. Our average bottle price is $34 a bottle. That's refreshing to hear that. Actually. Yeah. Thank you. I like so, which a lot of people tell me, no, I've seen Turley at $90 for this and this. And it's like, yeah, on the secondary market, but totally. for direct to consumer average bottle prices, you know, below $35. Yeah. And if you saw these vineyards and see the love and care that goes into farming them, you see the very small yields, um, you'd be shocked. Yeah. You know, well, so, I wouldn't be shocked. Yeah. I think maybe. All these guys listening, they'll be shocked. Yeah, you know what I mean, I, yeah. Most people are still shocked, you know, yeah. when you see a vineyard. No, I, I would be I when, when you see a vineyard that you know really, you know, you're not dropping very much fruit, just a little, you know, shave and a haircut, and you still get you know half a ton to the acre. Yeah, you know that's that's not a lot. Yeah, and when you think you know old vines are planted ten feet by ten feet, when you look at the vines, you know, you're like, wow, there's not a lot of fruit out there. Mm. But they're just doing their thing. You know, they've adapted to climates and, you know, rainfall patterns and, you know, all the like. Wow. I think um, we could do this all over again next year or something. Yeah. I, uh, I'd love to sit down and see, you know, get a recap on where things are at yeah, right now. For and, sure. Uh, I think, you know, I got a million other questions just about that we haven't even tapped into, like about 
uh, you know, how this harvest was to the past two and where other things are going, I think, business-wise with Napa Wines and, and, and the wine industry. I think it would probably be a lot more industry stuff we could talk yep, about. Yeah, so, for sure. Um, I don't know. Thanks, man, for doing this. Yeah, no problem. And uh, let's go have a roast. Yep. Cheers. Cheers.